0: This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel, challenge the status quo. It's, it's never is-
1: easy to yeah.
0: challenge the accepted leaders
1: is created from emotional learning, which means that its underpinning is neuroplasticity. That may feel like a curse. It may feel like something that you've been um, sentenced to live with, but I see it in a very optimistic way because what that means is that you have the power to change how your brain perceives pain over a period of time. So one of the most optimistic things to me is that because the brain is so plastic, it's so malleable, it's so labeled to new experiences, you always have the possibility to shift back into baseline and to live without pain.
0: Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. It is estimated that between 18 and 35% of Americans struggle with pain. So today I interview Dr. Melissa Farmer and she is one of only a handful of people in the US who is both a pain psychologist and a neuroscientist. So today we talk about the science of pain. We discuss the stages and even ties to your mental health and pain, which is so important in this post-COVID era, where we are finally being more open about the mental health struggles in the nation. So let's dive right into that conversation. And by the way, a big thank you to those of you who submitted your questions on social media, because we do address those in the end of this discussion. So let's hear from Dr. Farmer. Melissa, it is so nice to have you on the FemPower Health podcast. And we are here today to talk about pain. Now, many of us may define pain in different ways. And I know that there's been a lot of discussion. In um, the past many years, about the opioid epidemic, as an example, there's even some series now going on with the company that started some of this epidemic, or some would argue that way, or many would argue that way. But nonetheless, you know, there's there's a lot that may be misunderstood or not yet known about pain, and you have such an interesting background um, with your personal and professional experience. And so I'm really excited to have you talk to us about that today. So before we dive into all of your great knowledge, why don't we let everybody here know what your background is? So let's share your story.
1: Yes, thank you for having me. My my love affair with pain began about Uh, 14 years ago or so, um, I was trained at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and that's where I got my PhD in clinical psychology and neuroscience, where I began focusing on the physiological mechanisms of pain and how that translates to the psychological experience of pain. So from one of the things I'll, I'll begin with is that To really understand pain, you have to understand the entire circuit, from the nociceptors, the receptors in the skin, all the way to the spinal cord, all the way to the brain, because different changes and and modifications in how that circuit or those circuits work at any of those points can change and modify the perception of pain. So it's a, it's a that perspective was something I inherited whenever I went to um, McGill because it was a very unique. Concentration of pain experts. It was actually the site of the first multidisciplinary pain clinic that was started by Ronald Melzack uh, in the 60s and 70s, and so it had a really huge impact on me because I was developing and understanding pain, you know, in the middle of this really enriched environment of clinicians and basic scientists who are collaborating together. So, for instance, at clinical rounds, we'd have basic scientists come and give their uh, their ideas about mechanisms of the patients that were being presented. So it was a really fascinating experience because also, I saw so many different types of pain and so many strange configurations of symptoms and I got to see people who were quite brilliant reason scientifically about what could be responsible for these symptoms. So a lot of these symptoms that just seem confounding and they don't really make sense, there is always a logic. And one of the things I learned is that the nervous system shifts the rules that it uses to interpret sensations whenever you go into a state of chronic pain. So during these experiences, I had a training in mindfulness-based meditation, a CBT, um, existential psychotherapy, and one of the things that was so impressive to me was meeting each of these people in pain, they all had their unique pain journey. And I was I was inspired by all of them because even though they came, whenever they came into the clinic, y- you could see how much suffering they were experiencing. I could still see who they were inside, like who they were trying, like fighting to, to rediscover in themselves. You know, that identity that they thought they'd lost. I could always so I was always very optimistic whenever I'd work with patients. And that's one of the things that's kept me motivated over the years, just because I know that it's possible to come back to a baseline state. The brain and the nervous system are beautifully plastic. They're never set in stone and they feed off of, they they are hungry for new experiences that we give them. Um, so I I just sort of fell in love with the complexity of pain and I ended up doing a postdoctoral research fellowship with Vanya Upkarian, who's a pioneer uh, in research about how the brain adapts to chronic pain, and we were doing really exciting work showing that pain actually becomes emotional over time, and that was about the time that my research career started to take off. I you know, was a research assistant professor at um, Northwestern University, and things were going well, and then I developed chronic pain myself so it was a combination of lower back pain and pelvic pain with neuropathic elements so it was it was very weird feeling everything in my body that i'd studied for years unfold and um, i i then experienced firsthand what patients experience which is this sort of weird sometimes traumatic merry-go-round in the medical system where, you know, I'd I'd get a diagnosis, I'd I'd get a treatment, I'd get scans, scans, showed nothing, the medications didn't really do anything. Some of the specialists would give me conflicting advice. And also, what shocked me, which will shock no person listening to this who's ever experienced pain, is that they weren't listening to me. (laughs) You know, I was telling them exactly what I was experiencing in my body, and they were dismissing it. And that's why I have so much compassion for people who are on this journey themselves because they they are the true experts. I really strongly believe that. And one of the things I've always done with the research that I've done is cue into what the person's experience is and look at how I can use science to validate that experience. It also uh, made me very acutely aware of the huge chasm between the science that exists and what patients have access to, and it's huge. You know, a generous, rec- a generous uh, estimation is it takes you know ten to fifteen years for knowledge to trickle down through you know clinical guidelines and to practitioners to actually reach patients. But it was that was one of the things that um, ultimately motivated me to leave academia. So it's been a very whirlwind yeah. tour. And it's interesting because you're,
0: you're summarizing not only what is going on in the field of pain and one, like how ironic that you're studying this and now go through your own journey. And of course, I'm very sorry for everything that you've had to go through. And I know in many of our discussions, you've shared how you've been able to um, support yourself in getting through that pain. And so I'm really happy to hear that. But in all that you're saying, I I feel like it's the, the beginning of the discussions in so many of my podcast episodes, where, you know, there's this, you know, a lot of doctors are actually saying, we know that the patients are the expert on their own body. I think a lot of it, honestly, is patients not necessarily knowing what they need to share with the doctor to help Clue the doctor in. There's a lot of I don't know what I don't know, especially in women's health, where there's a lot of medical gaslighting, a lack of research. We could go on and on there. But also, the way doctors are trained, it's also a very often a, a generalist perspective, obviously, until you get to the subspecialty. But one of the things that I'm also finding as a theme in the podcast is how there are more and more subspecialists just because we do need that deep knowledge and it's hard because it's mm-hmm. expensive to tend to when you go to the subspecialists because a lot of them are out of network um, but there really is this growing body and who knew now there's this pain subspecialty do you go to like a pain expert is it a neurologist is it a neurologist who specializes
1: in pain like if i have pain where do i go Oh, that's such an excellent question. If it were me again uh, or if it were a family member I would suggest that people only go to people who to practitioners um, who have specific uh, training in chronic pain. So okay. there'll be certifications uh, that that they have um, listed because the one of the most shocking studies of the last 10 years that I read was something that, Uh, they queried different medical students about how much pain education they'd gotten in different medical schools. And in North America, the average person in medical school only gets four to 11 hours of pain education. And that's primarily acute pain education, how pain works in a healthy, uh, normal baseline nervous system, and also how to prescribe opioids for post-surgical pain. That is what the standard doctor learns. And so unless they seek additional information and not just seek additional information, but like actively search out what is the research showing right now, unless they do that, they unfortunately are not equipped with the knowledge needed to diagnose or treat pain, which absolutely feeds into this idea that these specialists are becoming big players um, but also, I think that I'm, I'm really heartened to hear that, that the idea of uh, a patient as the expert is, is something that's commonly coming up in the conversations that you're having, because um, the more we listen to patients, the more they share their stories, the better. One of the things that I love whenever a patient tells me all the little details about pain, for example... Um, a list of partial treatments, treatments that partially worked. Those are all cues. For instance, if something reduced pain 1 to 2 points out of 10, that's important information because, for example, if you have a reduction in pain after physical therapy for even a couple of days, that means there's a layer. It's like an onion. A layer of that onion is muscular. And if you work on peeling back that muscular component of pain, and get that under control, then you're able to see what's underneath. And so that's why I really love the multidisciplinary approach because everyone's pain is different and those, a lot of patients often think of those, those things as treatment failures. Oh, I, you know, it didn't take my pain away totally. But there's a lot of information to be gleaned from those partial responses. And I, I hope that uh, providers pay more attention to those partial responses as well
0: you know it's it's almost perfect that you brought up the the points you just did because especially with how providers are being trained on pain because one of the things that you had shared with me is a lot of the research around the stages of pain. Mm-hmm. And so I maybe we can start there just to level set because you know to your point there is acute pain and then there's chronic pain and I assume depending on which stage you're in, the root cause, and to your point, what works or doesn't for an individual. And I think you're alluding to for each person, it's different what works Mm -hmm. and why. Um, So why don't we start with the stages um, and feel free to layer in any relevant information and we can just keep digging in as you talk.
1: Sure. So uh, research so far has identified four stages of pain. The first stage is predisposition in that there are some people who, for instance, have brains that are a little more predisposed to learn pain. Smokers, for example, are people who, I like to call them emotional learners, uh, just because there are some people who learn well emotionally, really effectively. Uh, but this has been uh, specifically linked with the size of certain uh, hippocampal structures and the amygdala size volume in the brain so there are some structural brain features that can predict beforehand before someone ever develops pain what kind of pain trajectory they'll experience so in a sense there's a pre-existing vulnerability so if you've had a if and this is one of the reasons why i think that women are particularly um susceptible to develop pain we're great emotional learners Uh, And as I'll discuss in a little bit, you'll see why emotional learning is such a fundamental concept to chronic pain. So that's one layer. Another stage is the injury-related pain or the acute pain, which is what we normally think of whenever we think of pain. So this is nociception proper. And this is what just sort of the normal rules of of pain. So you'll normally see tissue uh, inflammation uh, that sort of, Ebbs and and peaks, you know, within a few weeks or a month, and then it goes down back to normal. So this is the tissue healing period. Then you have a period of subacute pain, which is about a month after an injury, maybe three months after an injury, and that's whenever the pain just hasn't stopped. And there's research on this particular stage of pain that suggests that the amount of information shared between two parts of the brain determine the likelihood that someone will transition to chronicity. And the two parts of the brain are the nucleus accumbens, which is sort of like the reward center of the brain, and also the medial prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for emotional learning. So uh, the person I worked with, Dr. Upkarian, did a, a prospective study finding that the amount of communication between these two brain regions predicted with over eighty percent accuracy who would have pain a year later. Independent, whenever you have groups that are the exact same in terms of the amount of pain, they have the same uh, injury characteristics, all of the psychological characteristics are the same, this is the thing that differentiated who would go on to become chronic. So that's sort of the transitional period. Uh, And then there's the final stage, which is the chronic pain stage. And this is, you know, depending on who you talk to, whenever pain has lasted, the timing is really arbitrary, but three to six months after the pain has begun, it's considered chronic. And there are also, you know, once you get into the chronic phase, you start to see emotional brain regions take a much bigger role in the maintenance So, for example, in that same study, whenever Dr. Apkarian uh, was observing people over the first year of development of pain, he saw, using functional magnetic resonance imaging, that the sensory perception of pain initially during the subacute phase was being explained by sort of sensory-related processing in the brain. And over the course of the year, that transitioned to subcortical emotional brain regions, meaning that by the end of that first year, emotional regions were generating the sensory perception of pain. And that's a really profound observation because it suggests that sensations become emotional. And it's something that, that, for instance, even in my own pain journey, even after I'd been studying it for a while, whenever I realized and I was feeling the pain in my body, this is an emotional memory. This is not sensation that's happening to me. It's a real mind shift. So it's a mind shift even for you know neuroscientists, but even whenever you're feeling it in your body to consider that sensations are emotional, it's a really dramatic departure from how we've seen pain in the past. So what this means is that whenever we're looking at treating someone who has chronic pain, we are no longer just treating sensations, we're treating the emotional brain as well. And what we see uh, in neuroimaging studies is that emotional learning is at the core of a lot of the changes in brain function and structure that we see, which is both a concerning finding and an optimistic finding. Because that means neuroplasticity, brain neuroplasticity is at the core of the creation of chronic pain. And fortunately, we understand uh, from a scientific perspective that emotional learning can be reshaped dynamically with new learning. So then what that becomes, uh, it it becomes an issue of targeting treatments at helping people explore the emotions surrounding pain, helping them challenge uh, and change habits, movement habits, emotional habits, thought habits, um, uh, just sort of creating a, a really holistic picture of how pain Uh, impacts their life, and taking a look at each of those perspectives and helping them make new decisions, new changes that help them create new experiences related to pain. Because the way to change brain function and structure is through new experiences.
0: You know, you've talked about these stages. And one thing I just want to settle on, because I'm a firm believer in being proactive and and prevention as much as we can. But I'm sure that those who have Chronic pain are like, okay, what do I do? So, just to quickly, we want to get to the chronic pain sufferers, but we also don't want to become chronic pain sufferers. So, for those who are looking at this from a preventive, proactive mode, you know, if you Mm -hmm. label the four stages, you know, can you flow from stage one to stage four? And, like, are there some quick things that we should? address, and I don't even know if this is from the patient perspective and even the provider perspective because of the different degrees of understanding. Um, So at at a general level, are there Mm. like considerations we should take into account if we start with that acute pain?
1: For instance, if you have a history of depression or anxiety or PTSD and you want to prevent pain from happening in the future... The most effective thing to do is to keep your nervous system as relaxed as possible on an ongoing basis. So, what that means is exploring different ways to enhance parasympathetic. Uh, nerve function, uh, and also uh, definitely exploring vagus nerve stimulation processes. So that can be something even behavioral. There are lots of, for instance, uh, trauma-informed yoga classes online that deal really nicely with soothing uh, the nervous system, and they have specific techniques for either manually uh, modulating vagus nerve function or even just, uh, I know it sounds a little weird, but how we how we examine our environment modulates nerve, uh, vagus nerve function. So for instance, looking behind our shoulders up and down and around for threats and seeing that we're safe is giving the vagus nerve uh, input that we are right. actually safe, we're not in harm, we can relax. Um, similarly, Uh, physical loving physical touch to reinforce that you're safe you're in a safe space so that would be something if you're interested in preventing like for the predisposition uh, part of the stages in acute stages one thing to understand is that the body is created to amplify pain all of this is normal and so just really relaxing and appreciating the fact that your body is coming to your sort of, you know, being called to protect you. So instead of interpreting the physical signs as, oh, something might be getting worse, congratulating your body and thanking your body for creating an inflammatory response because inflammation has a purpose. The purpose is to reduce the perceived threat and to protect the tissue and heal the tissue. So, you know, during the um, injury phase, taking rest, not pushing yourself before you need to be pushed, taking a lot of rest and relaxation, and definitely pacing. And those would be the same things I'd suggest for the subacute phase in addition to extra work to soothe the nervous system. Because one of the reasons why I keep on bringing up, you know, soothing the nervous system is that emotional learning, uh, it's most strongly fueled by high cortisol and strong negative emotions. So by reducing cortisol levels, by relaxing, by taking a break, by recuperating, uh, and by correcting, gently correcting negative emotions that might be related to the pain process, you're preventing really strong emotional learning from happening. So that would be the best way to, to target that. And then once pain becomes chronic, it's also important to remember the nervous system has become better and better over time at transmitting the sensory signals that are creating pain. So it is true that the these this sort of imprints on the nervous system, it becomes a pattern. It becomes a very efficient way that the nervous system has uh, evolved to cope with what it perceives as a threat. And so I mean, one of the other things that happens whenever pain becomes chronic is there can be these spontaneous ebbs and flows of symptoms. And the main message here is to be very aware of the anticipation of pain. And I bring this up because first of all, it's natural. Whenever pain increases, you're um, more likely, likely to think, oh, is this a going to come into a flare. Is this, is this, does this mean it's getting worse? Does this mean there's really an injury? The anticipation of pain and the anxiety related to that, there are brain imaging studies showing that the brain signature of anticipating pain is the exact same as experiencing pain itself. So anticipation and worry about pain is essentially rehearsing being in pain. So you really want to work with reducing those habits and those, it's its emotional and and thought patterns that you're, that you're, you want to control as much as possible um, because on a whole, what the nervous system is doing whenever it sort of entrains into this chronic pain pattern is these Patterns are becoming more internalized. And the less you update your brain with new information, the more internalized the pattern becomes. So the main thing that I suggest to people with chronic pain is to continue exploring their environment, to continue moving, to continue trying new patterns, new habits, new... Just think of it as experiments. Because the less your nervous system maintains this internalized pattern of functioning, the better. You're essentially priming your body or your mind for neuroplasticity by continuing to explore your environment and to try new things. That's so interesting.
0: I'm just thinking back to your the first stage, and I'm, I'm just still thinking about it because uh, it, it, just the way you described it relative to the definition in the, in the earlier part of our discussion just kind of, I don't know, woke me up and and made me see it in a different way. Because you started out by, you know, if you already, you know, have depression or anxiety or any of these other factors, do X, Y, Z. And so I, I guess I'm now still trying to piece together this pain and these mental health things and how really they're connected. So is it like let's and i'm saying this also because especially in this post pandemic era i mean so many people are dealing with mental health issues and the startups are just every it seems like every week there's a startup on mental health because we we need the support so do you mind just addressing like in a practical way this tie so is it if i have like i don't know how you get pain simply because you have a mental health like my brain is not <laughs> able to put this together
1: <laughs> That's okay. So, so in, it's in, and it's something that I've only understood over time. So it, it's it's. The, so if we think, so there, are, for instance, there was a Finnish group. So one way to approach this, there was a Finnish group in I think two thousand fourteen that uh, published a study in, um, in, either plus one or PNAS, uh, that asked people. To mark on a map of a person where in their bodies they feel different emotions. And they got like hundreds of people to do this. And then they created heat maps where you see like, you know, a a person's outline. And then Mm -hmm. uh, it's a heat map of what depression looks like, for example. So depression looks like lack of sensation. It looks like numbness in the body. Happiness, people feel happiness in the chest and in the head. They feel love in the chest, head, and throat. They feel shame in their eyes. They feel anger in their fists, in their arms, and their shoulders. One of the things that, that is, has sort of emerged from this research is that emotions, if you had an emotion without a physical sensation attached, it would just be a thought. Almost every emotion we have has a physical sensation attached or a lack of it so for instance sadness and depression there's a loss a numbness a feeling of disconnection from your body and so whenever we think of it that way at this point whenever I have a sensation in my body honestly I'm like oh that's an emotion that's some sort of emotional response there so it's also a a process of, of becoming connected with the body But that's one of the reasons why I think with, whether it's depression or anxiety or PTSD or chronic pain, one of the most important things uh, that we can invest in for ourselves and for our patients is how to help people process emotions efficiently and effectively. That's what it comes down to. Given this post-COVID
0: era and finally people being open about our mental health, I, I think this is such an important road to go down. So I guess if I may clarify something, though, you know, I, I think a lot of us may be coming into this episode thinking, I had something happen, therefore I have pain. And, you know, originally when I asked the question about being proactive, you know, I... um I I perhaps came from it also from the perspective of something happened and it may be an acute pain and then it becomes chronic. Um, And so there it seems like addressing some of these proactive elements can help prevent it from getting chronic. But it seems like there's these root things when it comes to our mental health that have to be addressed as well.
1: We have very old templates and this is going into this the psychological realm quite a bit we have very old templates of how we make sense of things that happen to us and a lot of these templates are rooted in childhood about uh, basic things that we learned about how the world works based on our you know families of origin and the rules that were required to to survive and thrive in our early families I guess the the reason why I'm bringing this up is that whenever, whether it's pain or anything else in our life, whenever this comes up and there's a a pattern of anxiety or anger or sadness, there's already a pre-existing template of what those emotions mean. And that pre-existing template existed long before the injury, long before the beginning of the depression. It has some deep roots. For instance... uh, One of the ways that psychologists will approach this is looking at the core beliefs and how pain reinforces core beliefs. Core beliefs, it's a term that psychologists use to refer to these very old primitive beliefs that we formed whenever we were children based on our interactions with our family, about how the world works and about our value, how we value ourselves. What were the conditions for love? And what I find with a lot of patients, and I can explain this, the funny thing is I can explain this from a neuroscientist perspective as well, and I can do that right after this, but um, there are emotional templates that we've used our whole lives to explain why bad things happen to us. And so it's never just an injury. There is a judgment of the injury, a judgment of what the meaning was. What did we do wrong? How are we to blame? what should we have done differently? So in that sense, um, what I'm trying to get at is that there's a deeper emotional template that the injury experience is being filtered through, and that's part of the pain itself and part of the suffering itself. So it has some deep roots. With that said, I've also explained that you know whenever I, whenever I talk to people with pain, I, I have a hypothesis that there's a certain percentage that's peripheral, spinal, brain related. There are some people where it's mostly peripheral, absolutely. And they have very minimal contribution of these heavy emotional elements. Um, there are people who don't personalize the pain. However, there are other people where the pain is just yet another example of how they can't get ahead, another example of how, no matter how perfect they are, no matter how much they do everything right, something is still happening to me. So there's this filter of, of meaning that the pain is, is translated through. From a neuroscientist uh, perspective, this is seen as a web of memories. So memories are maintained in the brain like webs. Whenever you have Uh, chronic pain, there are certain parts of the pain memory that are related to the sensations, also the amount of movement or lack thereof that you can do, how how attached you are to your body, so that's posterior parietal cortex, there is whether or not it's impacting your future planning, so that's dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. There's how much it impacts your feelings of reward, which is you know the nucleus accumbens and and to some extent the medial prefrontal cortex. There's even a almost rote procedural memory. So sometimes whenever you have pain, you just sort of like move your body. Yeah, it's still there. Like it's it almost becomes a habit, a motor habit. So there are all these little tendrils of a pain memory that are activated whenever you're in the chronic pain state. And then of course, there are these deeper levels of meaning, uh, which can be stored in different parts of the brain. And I guess what I'm bringing this up, the reason I'm bringing this up is that treating the chronic pain memory is is treating all of those tendrils, all of those different aspects at once. And it, can't be done in just a, you know, a single shot, and as l- much as I'd love to have a single medication that would take care of all of that, it's unlikely. So that means that there are behavioral and emotional and experiential elements to treatment that are absolutely essential. So at this point, whenever I work with patients, I primarily focus on how do they process emotions, because if they process emotions more effective, effectively, more rapidly, their pain goes away more quickly. Their flares reduce more quickly. This is not for everyone. Like I said, there are some people who have peripheral dominant pain. Which is, again speaks to the importance of listening to, to how each person presents their pain to you. Because the pattern will be different. The puzzle pieces will be of different sizes which is part of the fun, <laughs> I think.
0: Almost summarizing how our society is, is like, you know, you you have a, a pain, here's this prescription, or you have anything, it's often here's a prescription. And there's such a tie here. I mean, do you feel like you're, you're kind of, this is all exploding, the way we think about medicine and where certain treatments, whether it's a prescription or not, almost fit in? And we're too siloed in the thinking?
1: I absolutely do and I I don't know how to make sense of it yet because you know like every every year I feel like I'm understanding pain in a completely new way. I'm discovering these new levels. You know, one of the one of the assumptions that would follow from this view of pain is that if one were to take medications or herbal support for pain, What you would want is things that impact learning, new learning, for example, although that both impacting new learning and also reducing uh, past negative learning. But for example, uh, gabaergic drugs, so pregabalin or gabapentin are not good for new learning, for example. So although there are situations where those particular medications may be appropriate for a person from a learning perspective, they would garble the message. They would prevent new learning from happening. Wow. This can be in the, there are lots of levels here too, because, you know, you take medications at different times of the day. For example, there's some people who find a lot of relief, merciful pain relief from medical marijuana and cannabinoids, for example. And one of the things, so I'm, I'm really not, I, I don't like an either or type of of, of mentality, because honestly, there are people who are suffering and anything that helps, thank goodness, there's something that helps, right? You know, yes. But for example, um, if a cannabinoid um, helps your pain, uh, taking that at a different time of day from uh, the part of the day whenever you're learning something new would be useful because cannabinoids are how the body forgets and how the brain forgets. So it's not a it's not something that helps with new learning at all. And you can so you can work with both things by taking that medication during a certain time of the day and then doing the exploration and the new learning during another part of the day once you know you don't feel the effects of the the acute effects of the medication as much.
0: Wow. So So you have a company now that is really working through how do you help patients and kind of going off of your statement of not being either or, Mm -hmm. and I think so many companies who are developing apps for very specific things are trying to use data to figure out how you customize. Like I know precision medicine, Mm -hmm. you know, has really grown, um, so much as well. Thank goodness. Um, And because it has been like a very black and white type of thing in the past and things are changing and thank goodness for technology. Um, So maybe you could just tell us a little bit more because what I also loved when we, I first learned about your company is how you were saying there are certain things that if you can't do it and you know it would be a solution that would help patients, then they would be referred out. Mm -hmm. So you really talk about... You know, trying to understand that patient, and so I'd love to maybe if you could just spend like a couple of minutes talking about that, and then if you're looking for patients, maybe we can ask the audience if they wanted to contact
1: you. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, with my own journey and with a lot of the the patients that I've I've interacted with, like I said, uh, one of the things that was so clear is that every person's journey is very unique. And one of the challenges with the traditional medical system is that there's really limited room for personalization. And so one of the things that we... that So I got together with a chronic pain patient, entrepreneur, and Vanya Apkarian, whose research uh, I collaborated on for, for eight years, um, who's a neuroscientist, and, and we were essentially trying to figure out, like, how could we translate the knowledge that exists... To a form that patients can access and help them use it for their benefit. And so, how that has manifested is um, through the AVO Health app. One of the reasons why I've been really ex- inspired by this is that there are ways that you can form hypotheses. We take a very scientific perspective on this, form hypotheses based on Dr. Apkarian's research about what factors. Uh, play the biggest role in a specific person's pain. And this is something that, you know, we have readouts, and I, I you know, specifically look for neuropathic pain characteristics as well as uh, psychological pain characteristics and, you know, even acute pain characteristics to try to form an initial hypothesis of what does this person, what would it, they benefit from most? So we've created a product that first does this assessment on the first week, And then after the first week, it switches into a behavioral health treatment plan that's personalized to each person. And we have different arms or tracks that promote movement, uh, pain neuroscience education, different types of adaptive thinking, so new thought patterns, physical relaxation, sleep hygiene, and social connection. And we have, based on someone's first week with us, we have an initial hypothesis about what works. We give them three to five day tracks and we start to see compared to before the track began, does their pain change? If it improves, we increase the value of that track. If there's no change or if their pain increases, we decrease the value of that track. So we're learning in real time whether the hypotheses are true and how we can improve those those hypotheses. Because one of the things that people feel often really overwhelmed with whenever they look at behavioral um, pain management is how do i know what works for me and so we're trying to take that guesswork out of it but also in the process we're creating opportunities for neuroplasticity by helping people explore pathways for relief that are perfect just for them um and also uh i do uh one-on-one meetings with people to help just to, I kind of feel like everyone deserves, everyone deserves some time with uh, someone who knows a lot about pain to where they can, it's not only validation, but it's um, making sure that we're personalizing the program for exactly what they need. Yep. Uh, so this yep. is, this is our creation. Uh, and we're currently collecting um, data to see how our current program works. It's a dynamic program. Uh, it lasts three months. So one thing that we are doing currently is we are uh, recruiting for research participants. So people who join AVA right now will get the program for free for three months. And you can see whether it works for you and how it fits with your needs. Uh, And I can share in the notes uh, with Georgie how to get access to that. So I'll give you a link and you can just join whenever you want.
0: Now, one thing I didn't want to forget is there were some questions on my social media around pain. So do you mind if we spend a couple of minutes on those? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Okay.
0: So I have bursitis, tendinitis, compression of the C6, C7, and T1, lots of pain down the left arm. And this person also, I think, has been um, or considering psychedelics and was so curious.
1: I think it's it's fair to consider a couple of hypotheses. One could be that, because I do believe that sometimes there are some uh, peripheral or nerve-related things that are related. They mention a couple of itises, uh, which means uh, there's the, the implied uh, presence of inflammation. One of the things that I always uh, suggest to patients as an experiment to see if inflammation is playing a pathological or a non-normal role in pain, is to try something called Ted's Pain Cream. Uh, And I went to graduate school with Ted. Uh, The cream that he has, I suggest to people as an experiment to see if there is nociception, specifically um, sensitization of peripheral nociceptors because the cream blocks two molecular pathways that are responsible for that particular mechanism. It does not affect normal sensation. So if you feel like, you use the word bursitis and tendonitis, if you feel that there is potentially pathological inflammation involved, this is a way to test that out. You take the cream, you put it on a couple of times a day for a few days. If the pain improves, you just you know, did an experiment with yourself and found that this cream will help reduce that inflammation. Um, yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty cool. The and the alternative hypothesis: if it doesn't impact your pain, then consider that there may be an emotional component to it. And whenever you consider the emotional component to it, that means there may be memories emotional memories stored in your arms, stored in your back. And so that's something that you could explore with a pain psychologist, or on your own or through the AVO app.
0: Okay. And so the psychedelics, would they, I feel like I'm going to do an episode on that. I actually made a note. I'm like, I need to just do an oh, episode. Yeah. But I don't know if you have like one or two sentences um, for us
1: to, to talk about here. I think the early evidence is really promising. And what I like most about The idea of psychedelics is that they're great at helping shift your pain mindset and expanding what I think is possible. So in terms of a learning tool, I think psychedelics are a really fascinating potential for transforming the way that you see pain. So this
0: one, um, there's three bullet points, but I think they all have to do with each other. I guess this person has dealt with perceived pain versus objectively reproduced pain and how doctors might distinguish between the two and how a patient can get the doctor to take them seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think, I feel like I have pain, but the doctor may say, no, you can't because X, Y, Z. And yes, those are the two main ones. And I guess j- they're just asking like, how do we rectify this? It's like, I go in, I say, I have X. The doctor's like, no, you don't. You're It's in your head type of thing. And they're struggling to really be heard. And I think this is kind of something we alluded to yeah. in the beginning of the conversation, where a lot of it is the root of lots of uh, lack of education around things we need. But if you could maybe share that based on what you have experienced with yourself and so many patients and in your research.
1: Yeah. First, I want to just express compassion, uh, because that that is, it feels like gaslighting. <laughs> um, your pain is real because you feel it, period. Uh, It is a well-known fact in the pain research community that some pain is reproducible at will, and then there's something called spontaneous pain, which just comes and goes. Uh, There is a, um, for instance, a review article by Gary Bennett, uh, and it's about spontaneous pain. So this is something that has been in the literature. For a long time, just because another person can't reproduce your pain does not mean that the rest of the pain doesn't exist. It just means that the pain that is reproducible has a very specific mechanism. I, I'm I'm a little conflicted here because on one hand, sometimes we don't have the choice to change doctors. You know, if if a doctor just has a certain point of view, that's unfortunate. Uh, if you were listening and um, this is still going on. I invite you to email me at melissa at avohealth.com, and I can write your doctor an email or a letter explaining that pain does not need to be reproduced in the clinic in order to be real. It would be my pleasure to do that.
0: Any last words? We've covered so much about the foundations of pain, you know, the mental health aspects, which I think are so important to take into account, you know, I love to have these episodes end with, okay, here's the solution. And right now I think it's you're doing your research. So many others are as well. Um, you're really working to customize the solutions to individuals, which it seems like is needed. But any, any parting words that, that you would like for us to, to take away?
1: Chronic pain is created from emotional learning, which means that its underpinning is neuroplasticity. That may feel like a curse. It may feel like something that you've been um, sentenced to live with, but I see it in a very optimistic way because what that means is that you have the power to change how your brain perceives pain over a period of time. So, th- one of the most optimistic things to me is that because the brain is so plastic, it's so malleable, it's so labeled to new experiences you always have the possibility to shift back into baseline and to live without pain. So for anyone who's listening who has been told that they will need to live with pain for the rest of their lives, I really hope that you'll keep open the possibility uh, that with new habits, with new ways of seeing pain, with new experiences in your body, and with emotional processing, you you can find relief.
0: Thank you for being in this space. I mean, again, it's so Mm -hmm. interesting that this is an area you researched, then you became a patient. So you have a really unique perspective because you've lived it. Um, So thank you so much for everything you're doing and and will continue to be doing. and, And thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.